The talk tonight is called, Why Meditation? And the first thing I'd like to say is how perhaps we should relate to it. It's not really time off. It's not a break in the schedule. Rather, it is a time to explore with me what is being said so that we can contact the experience of what is being said together. And so it requires as much work on your part as it does on mine. Why meditation? Some of you, I'm sure, have asked that question over and over again in the course of the last couple of days. And knowing why is very important, I think, because it can set the mind at ease. I think Jack will be talking about the hindrances in the next couple of days, perhaps tomorrow or so. And one of those hindrances is doubt. That is questioning what you're doing. Why are we here? And that doubt can scatter the energy and the focus of the meditation considerably. So having an intellectual understanding of what we're doing is important, but it certainly isn't enough. It must be more intuitive. For faith to build, we need to contact the experience of why we're here. And that leads to understanding why we're here, and then that perpetuates the energy. If we think of the many reasons and motivations, perhaps the single most predominant motivation for what brings people here is, in some way or other, despair. And you can say, well, I came for some peace of mind. Or I came to experience love in my heart. Or I came to know God. But each one of those reasons show a sense of lacking behind it. And in some way, a despairing with the situation as it is. And meditation addresses that despair, head on. For the journey of meditation is very much the journey of understanding our suffering, our pain. And the spiritual awakening is awakening to those things which cause us pain. So meditation very much addresses the reason why we're here. If we allow it, it's not an overnight cure. And developing a sense of patience with the practice is very, very important. The impatience of looking ahead to when you're going to be leaving here when am I going to get out of this thing, is really what you're saying to yourself is, when can I be away from myself? When can I not observe myself? Because it's the self-observation that is the freeing factor and also the one that causes the most misery. Beginning to watch ourselves is not an easy task. And it brings forth a real sense of, my God, is this the way I am? Yeah. Not just you, but everyone in the room, including up here. I remember Joseph used to say, if he projected his mind states on a screen in front of everybody, nobody would show up for the meditations. <laughs> I now see what he means. <laughs> the Buddha said something 
I was going to say he said something rather profound. <laughs> he said a lot of things rather profound. One of the things he said was that the mind was the forerunner of all things. And the beauty of this practice is it continues to take us deeper and deeper into what that, the meaning of that is. The mind is the forerunner of all things. What do we mean by mind? Well, you've been watching it for a couple of days. And it's the whole content of your consciousness. It's the emotions, the thoughts, the attitudes, the beliefs, the images, the likes, the dislikes. That's what we're calling mind. And usually what we think of is that we as people are sort of settling back and receptive to the world as it comes at us. And it, the world sort of impinges on us. And we're sort of the receptacle of what the world is giving us. But it's very much different than that. Actually what happens is that the mind goes out and creates a creating function, creates the world in some ways and certainly creates the pain and the joys and the miseries, the problems, the distortions of our lives. To come to deeper understandings of how that distortion happens is really the process of meditation. If we don't understand our minds, we're enslaved by them. We, we remain at the whim of everything that enters. And we're caught in a vicious struggle to exclude certain things and include others. But with the understanding of the mind in its rightful way, there becomes clarity, peace, and composure, harmony. It's the understanding that's important. You know, I said in interviews today, and lots of you would say, you know, I can't do this practice. My mind focuses on the breath and then immediately it leaves. And it's, it just can't stay put. And I said, that's the practice, understanding the way of the mind. To understand the nature of the mind, that it leaves, that it won't stay put, is the practice. It's not that you have to keep it on there the whole time for it to be the practice. We just have to understand the movements and way and what, what is happening. So there's no wrong thing. Even when it leaves, there's self-knowledge that's being gained. And to think of it like that really opens it. It's not that you're trying to do something so much. It's just you're trying to watch it and understand it. And so there's no mistakes involved. There's no such thing as a mistake in meditation. Being with some of you on the first days of a long retreat, or a 10-day retreat, I've reconnected with how difficult it is, and I, my heart warms to that difficulty because we have certainly experienced that and do experience it. And it's because we swim against the currents of our conditioning. It's because these old habit patterns push us one way and we're trying to move a different way. We're trying to swim upstream in some way. What's happening is we bring those old habit patterns to bear on our practice of following the breath. So that we're with the breath and all of a sudden we're not and then we're 
judging and damning ourselves for not being with the breath, criticizing in a harsh way, frustration, anger, throwing ourselves back on the breath, reinforcing the same old patterns that have led us up to this point. And meditation is supposed to be was supposed to be giving us access to something new, yet we're meeting it with something old. Maybe that's not so skillful. Maybe we need to cultivate different qualities of mind to alleviate those old patterns so that we can begin to see them with more clarity. And certainly patience and gentleness are two qualities that are very useful. And being able to cultivate a sense of clarity and understanding. So when you see yourself getting caught up in the old conditioned ways, just let it go. And in that letting go, that's patience. That's gentleness. And bring your mind back. In speaking about patience, I remember once I was sitting here, having done about, I don't remember, maybe three or four years into practice. And at this particular time, I was um, sitting continuously for many months. And I remember having a particularly difficult retreat in which my mind could not find my breath. And the woman who was teaching at that time had been sitting some 20 years. And I went to her and I said, I've been sitting three or four years intensively. I like that word. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't even find my breath. I don't even know I breathe sometimes. And she said, you know, I've been sitting 20 and it's the same way for me. (laughs) Patience. You've been sitting two days, some of you. I'd like to talk about a few aspects of meditation tonight, which I feel are important to understand as we do the practice. Ways to orient ourselves, attitudes of mind, really. The first one is discovering ourselves. I remember a particular time in my practice when I just, I, um, I just had this urgency not to have any more secrets from myself. I just, I don't want to hide anymore. I remember, th- of course it came back, I <laughs> continued to hide it. But I, having, having that sense within ourselves of, okay, enough is enough. <clears throat> I don't care if it's painful. I don't care if it's painful. I don't want to hide anymore. I was reading an article once in Newsweek about Peter Sellers. And the interviewer was interviewing Peter Sellers and he said every time he was talking to Peter Sellers and asking him questions, he would go into a different one of his characters, like Professor Cousteau. He was never answering from his own voice. It was always one of his characters. At the last part of the interview, the interviewer got sort of (laughs) perturbed and said, Peter, I want to hear your voice. And Peter Sellers says, this is my voice. No, no, this is my voice. No, this is my voice. He couldn't find his own voice. And the interviewer ended the article by saying there's something sad about someone who doesn't know his own voice. And in a different way, we don't know our own voice. Many of you have come and said how you seem to change with each person you meet. You try, one person said, They try to accommodate that person. 
so that if that person thought that they needed somebody gentle, that person was trying to be gentle. If they thought that they needed somebody intellectual, they would try to be intellectual. He, she said, you know, I don't know who I am. All I know is what other people try to call forth from me. Getting back to the basics, getting back to who we are, getting back to the essence. Fundamentally, discovering our bodies. <clears throat> there is so much self-image in our bodies. You can tell it by the way we hold ourselves. You can, tell, you can almost read the life history of that person by their posture and the way they sit, the way they stand, the way they address the world. Is it surprising that that life history is expressing itself when you sit down in quietude? Is it surprising that there is pain that comes out of that life history and expresses itself in terms of knots and tensions? It's our story, and our story has, in most cases, been very painful. To come back to our bodies, so important. These, this Buddha statue up here, if I can put my interpretation of that pose, there's another one that's in the, but this is my interpretation. That's called the Earth Witness Pose. And it's said that on the night that the Buddha was coming to full, fully awaken, to, to being fully awakened, he ha had a lot of hindrances of mind. Lots of things were um, coming out. And he reaches down and he touches the earth and just says, okay, come on, come on back, you know, let me, get, let me ground myself again. And that simple gesture, that's what we do when we contact our bodies. We ground ourselves again. We're back home. Settled back in. We haven't wanted this home. We try to own our body. Somehow we're up here. We belong up here in this region about a foot by eight inches. And everything else is kind of property. Discovering our bodies. I work with a hospice, and I work with the people who are in the later stages of usually cancer. But even in those later stages, there is a sense of denial quite often that they are in fact dying. Out of the hundreds of people that we have, that have come onto our service at hospice, I know of only one person that have, has been in that stage that has um, been in remission, gone into remission. And I've worked with hundreds. But they come into that stage and they say, well, you know, we'll let you in. We know what hospice is about, but I know this isn't really going to happen to me. And it's not until the body grips them, until the body starts dying, and they can really feel it, that they come in touch with the fact that they are dying and face all of it. And the people who often have the hardest time are the ones who think they're the most conscious. Because they have all of these concepts of beautiful death and they won't let their mind screams. It's almost dysfunctional spirituality. We better get in touch with our bodies. Remember I worked once with overweight males and females and they were trying to stop eating. And they said that when they got the urge, the next thing they knew they were at the refrigerator shoveling in the food. And when we explored it together, it was not because they were hungry, but because they were sad, because they were depressed, usually, or lonely. 
And their immediate reaction was to go to the refrigerator and feed the hunger, the hunger of their emotions, not the hunger of their body. With a little awareness, we can begin to see how we do this, how we overfeed it, how we mistreat it. Coming back in terms, in touch with our body. Discovering our body, the mind must be soft and allowing. Soft and allowing. And interested. If you're not interested in discovering yourselves, I don't know what you're doing here. Discovering our minds. You know, except beyond the bare actuality of the fat, which the mind records, records you can't really trust this thing. And having a basic mistrust is healthy of what it's telling you. I go back to the interviews today. So many of the people came, that came in were talking about judgment, self-damnation, and just... And they were believing this thing. And what you want to say is, just don't believe it. But that's a little too flippant. Because there's a great deal of work that comes in the understanding that it's not to be believed. But have a healthy <laughs> mistrust. Each of us have areas of ourselves that we do not like to admit. Areas of our mind. Aggression, anger, hostility, sexual impulses. Those areas of ourselves which we would rather not admit are part of us. And so we try to push them away. Meditation is very much the opposite. Very much the accommodating and opening and allowing for all of those things. The hidden corners. The dark secrets. Those things that you hate about yourself. Those things that you're, you hate so much that you won't even allow for the fact that they may be up here. So you push them out. All of it. All of it. The second aspect of meditation. Developing a proper relationship to that which is discovered. Seeing clearly without reaction. What is important is not what we see, not the object, but our relationship to it. If you think of meditation as a white wall, everything that is on that wall is the contents of what you see. The anger, the fear, the loneliness, all of that. And it comes and it goes. It covers the wall. But the meditation is the white wall. It's not the things. It's the thing that can allow it to be there and allow its disappearance as well and not be shaken by the content. Developing a mind that is poised has a lot to do with our freedom from that relationship because a poised mind is not running towards or running away. A mind that doesn't waver with its likes and dislikes. You know, just think in terms of your own prejudice. We'll take a gross example, and it gets much, much more subtle than this. But think in terms of a gross example, like one of your prejudices. And you have them, whether you want to admit them. They may be with the blacks, they may be with women, they may be with one religious sect or another. We all have the things that were bred in us. We're trying to be tolerant and all, but those things are still. Think when you meet one of your prejudices, whatever they are. What do you meet? Do you meet that person? 
Or do you meet the opinions that you formed in your history with similar people? It's exactly the same thing in a much more refined and subtle level when we meet things within ourselves, our pain. Tomorrow Jack will talk about widening our meditation experience to include physical sensations. And one of those physical sensations <laughs> that you're all aware of already is pain. How do we work with pain? When it shows itself, do we recoil in fear? Do we meet pain with fear? That's a very limited relationship with something. Rather, if we can go into it with a, a sense of letting it be, exploring it, looking at it, noticing it, investigating it, another whole world opens. In an experiment they did here, I think Harvard University, two or three years, uh, years ago, did a pre- and post-test for the three-month course. And they had the people submerge their hand, I was one of them, had the people submerge their hand in ice water. And then they recorded the pain that they felt, the hand felt, and their reaction to that pain. So there were two scores. The actual physical feeling, and then their own fear of that feeling. So their pre-test might be, 10, 10, 9, 9, if it was me, it was 10, 10, 10, 10. And then three months later, they did it again after these people had sat for three months. And I'm told what the scores were, were that they still felt the pain, it was still unpleasant at 10, 9, 8, that, but their reactions after having cultivated a non-wavering mind were more like two, three, four. So it was 10, two, 10, three, 10, ten four. <laughs> um, that's a powerful statement because it means that though the mind feels what it feels, it doesn't have to suffer in relationship to what it feels. That suffering has its root in fear. And to begin to understand fear in our lives is an important aspect of meditation. My own feeling is that you sit with pain for a little while, but when the mind starts struggling with it, when the mind starts doing battle with the pain, then it's probably best that you change positions. I was, the first course I ever did was a course with a man who made us do, or didn't make us do, encouraged us to do three-hour vows. This was my first course, and I was gonna see if I could do it. And not only that, you couldn't move you're supposed to stay in the position that you had, or vow hours. And he said, if you set through one, try two. If you set through two, try three. So I would sit through one, it was okay. Sit through two, it was pretty miserable, but I was gonna do it. After about two hours and one minute, <laughs> when I realized I was locked into the third hour, oh, the mind screams. What happened was that I conditioned more fear into myself sitting through that than I did in seeing the pain. And in subsequent courses, when pain would come up, I was more reactive, not less. And so sitting with discomfort is useful. It's not ever going to be pleasant. But when the mind starts getting tense and tight behind it, when the exploration and the openness vanishes, and the fear and the battling and the struggle ensues, then it may be best to change postures. And I, Jack will have a lot more to say about that tomorrow. Remember that allowance is not being tolerant of it. I, I'll, I'll tolerate it. 
when you tolerate something, there's still resistance. And what you're doing is that you're hoping that it will go away soon. Don't be with an experience in order for something else to happen. The experience itself is the meditation, not the change of the experience or the alleviation of pain or the whatever. The experience of pain itself, in this particular case, is the meditation. So watch the mind's tendency towards that. Emotions. Another area that we all have difficulty with. We suppress them, we act them out. We do lots of different things with them. And I used to think, I say, well, suppressions, you know, that's never any good. I don't say that anymore. I mean, there are times I think when, for instance, if you were, had a fight with your husband or wife and then needed to concentrate your mind on something immediately, that pushing that back down there somehow so that you can work effectively with what you're doing may be useful. But not here. There's nothing we need to do to get out of an experience here. And neither do we need to wallow in it. Rather, rather we need to explore it, to let it tell you its story. I really like to let it tell you its story. I really like that because it, it has a story. It has thoughts, it has images quite often. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's just an emotion that comes up. And it has a feeling, a physical sensation, and a, a concomitant mental experience. It has a story. And the story can be fascinating if we approach it from the non-wavering mind. The mind that doesn't turn immediately left and right towards things it doesn't like or towards things it does. But a mind that's clear without opinions, prejudice, and conclusions is a mind that can face and see things clearly. You see, when you're not, when you're not caught in trying to push it away, then you can see it. We can see it. You can see it. And actually, our resistance to things invests them with power. It really invests them with... It's a, little, it's a little more difficult to get a feeling for that, but our resistance to things really invests them with, with power. Right now, there's only one thought I don't want you to think, and that's a thought about an elephant. Now, if you were to sit, the first thing that would come to mind would be the thought of an elephant or I'm not supposed to think about an elephant, but the word elephant would come because it was the thing that the mind wanted least to have in it. And so it springs back like a loaded spring upon itself. Another thing that we're not very comfortable with that we need to develop a sense of equanimity to, I mean, there are lots of things, but I'm just picking out some of the highlights here, are thoughts. And many of you today, as you came up, would say, I can't meditate. There's too many thoughts in my mind. It's keeping me away from the meditation. And there was a struggle going on between you and your thinking. At some point, we're going to open up the meditation to thoughts, but until we do, they can be in the background. I mean, if you look at the Buddha here, which will represent as your breath. In seeing the Buddha, you also see the background. You also see the circle and us and other things. Let the background be the thoughts. Let your focus, the breath, be the, on the Buddha. And just let the thoughts go. They're not, they don't have to be disruptive. This is the beginning of right understanding to thought, a right relationship to thought the beginning of developing a non-wavering mind to thinking. <clears throat> 
The third aspect of meditation is the aspect which I feel is the most under-exercised aspect in the West and in the East, in the Theravada tradition, and that's investigation. It has meant so much to my own practice that I perhaps am a little prejudiced the other way. But it has a beauty, and it's actually one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and a very undernourished one here in the West. Investigation, looking with curiosity, but not waiting for answers, but opening ourselves. You know, we have been lied to. Not a devious kind of lie, but a lie based in ignorance and confusion by our culture. The ground on which we live has been based upon two, me and you, or me and something else. And so all of the ramifications of that premise have been just taken for granted. Now suppose that that premise is wrong. Then everything that that has been based upon has to be challenged. Everything, ambition, power, greed, our understanding of love. And so there's a real need to start investigating some of the things we've taken for granted in this society and challenge the premise on which we live. It brings the energy which keeps us from being caught. And it's kind of, it can get kind of thoughty, and that, that's why I don't want to push it this early in the retreat. Rather to have kind of a sense of when you sit down of like, what's going on in here? What's, what's this going on? And then just sitting and listening and, and moving and finding out what's going on. Not asking yourself questions. That's not what I mean by investigation. What is fear? What is fear? What is love? Where is there love right here? Who am I? Who are you? Who are you? <coughs> Look at the breath. What is the breath? Is it one thing or is it many things? Look at the body. What is the body? Is it solid? Can your mind pass through it? What is the body? The nature of reality begins to reveal itself through the contact with, those, with the experiences of those. We touch the fundamental laws of reality through contacting, through our awareness touching them. And those laws transform us. Those laws begin to transform us and change us in a natural way. It's not us doing it, it's that doing it to us, you might say. So all we have to do is open to the experience, let the experience in, no matter what the experience is, and the experience itself will be the, will be the changing factor. The meditation really begins to work in ways that are beyond thought. I remember seeing a television interview with a Nobel prize-winning physicist from California somewhere, and he was talking about the way in which he came to the discovery that led to his Nobel Prize. And he said he had been going over this problem for a period of weeks and had not been able to figure out the answers, the answer to it, and decided to say to hell with it, went to the beach and just was walking along the beach, and his eyes struck a seashell. And he said at that moment there was no thought, and the answer arose in his mind. And from that he won the Nobel Prize. 
there's a lot of information there beyond the thinking mind. And it doesn't mean that we push the thinking mind away, but that we also, but that we use it skillfully. Investigation. It gathers energy. It's the probing. It's the the non-accepting. It's the it shakes the apathy. When we're just sitting here, some of you have sat here for twenty retreats or month, three month courses, and you're just seeing the same thing. And that probing, that investigation. What's going on here? It's called chandra in Buddhist term, zeal, zest. What is this? That can crack that surface and get the whole thing moving in a different way. And the answers can be trusted. That's the beauty of this. Because an awareness is totally reliable. It's not colored with our opinions. And so what we see, we can trust. And that's why it's so conclusive. And that's why it's so revolutionary. Every step of this practice is an invitation towards discovery and whole new worlds open. Tonight I was out walking before I did the talk and I just noticed the awesomeness of the sky, the incredible mystery of it all. Is there that awesomeness in meditation? When awareness touches the ordinary, it becomes the extraordinary in the awesomeness of our minds. And that's why I meditate. Could we sit for a couple of minutes? I was thinking of that very fine line between awareness that you just mentioned at, in, in your conclusion and um, the, the mind that you shouldn't mistrust. The seeing, in other words, the seeing, um, often where is it coming from? Is it coming from the mind that yeah. is habitual or is it coming from a developed awareness? Right. And where is the truth? Um, Right. What, what, what I think you're asking is about subtler forms of thought in the mind. Yes. And so there's still identification going on with subtler forms of thought in relationship to the object. And what the mind is telling you about that object through those thoughts isn't the absolute truth of it necessarily, although insights can be interpreted by thought very accurately. Rather, it's a sense of just putting your mind in contact with that experience, okay? And not expecting any answers, and just opening to that experience without the contaminants of opinions about it. But you see, it's, it's, and those, and the insights that come are intuitive. They're not things that you think about in relationship to it. If you're thinking about something in relationship to that object, then that's just thought that's coming. That isn't the, the um, undistorted awareness that I was talking about. Rather, what happens when the awareness touches the object and insight comes is that the mind is usually very quiet and is very attentive and watching and suddenly there's an understanding of that process, but it didn't come through thinking. If it comes through thinking, then I would question it a little bit. Okay? Yes? How, how do you keep the awesome from becoming ordinary? That's a real good question. There's uh, an example I'd like sure. to give. Sitting for a long time, uh, maybe not so long for some people, 
there's a heightening of the senses and, and you begin to see colors more brightly and, mm. and be more open to your surroundings and food tastes wonderful and so forth. And I've heard people who've <coughs> meditated for a long time say, oh yeah, I'm going through the old you know, heightening of the perception, you know, sort of, you know, <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I know it. I know what you're saying. Oh, Lord, I know what you're saying. I mean, why can't we just let ourselves enjoy what's happening? Right, so right. That, that to me is the real drawback of, um, of, of long-term practice is that it loses the zeal in some way. Or it can't, not necessarily. It doesn't in all cases. It doesn't a lot. Now, sometimes Dharma books help me a lot with that. I read about the mysteries that I'm not seeing, and then I inquire into them, investigating, looking at it. And it gives you a sense of uh, energy and enthusiasm instead of the same old things coming up day in and day out. Also, changing your perspective a little bit. That is, like anger. I mean, anger can be seen as something that's aversive and, you know, like this thing that keeps getting me and all of that, or it can be seen in terms of a concern. And oftentimes a concern is a statement of love. And when you just see it in a different perspective, a whole different relationship to it reveals itself, which is kind of an awesome quality. And there's not just one way to see anything. There are many, many, many slices of the pie. And we just have to not assume that the way we're seeing it is the total and complete truth. But rather to see and break it apart if needed be, or to see it in context with the general, the particular in relationship to the general. Sometimes that helps, breaks the patterns up. But you need zest, you need energy, and a renewing quality to look in different ways. And that has always brought it up in my practice. Dharma books have been very helpful for me. I'll read somebody else's perspective, perception of what I'm seeing, and I'll say, I'll see if I want, I want to see if I can see it that way. You see? Yeah. Are, are you saying that thinking isn't useful or can't ever be trusted, or what exactly are you saying? What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that. I'm not saying that. Yeah. Um, the question is, is thinking ever useful? <laughs> it, what am I saying, she wanted to know. Um, it, of course it has its use. You couldn't find your way back home without it. Um, or to the dining hall, which is probably more important. <laughs> it has its place, and I think the place, and this is a limited understanding, but I think its place is in the description. You see, you see an event, you, you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Now the fact of that breaking up, the mind says, I broke up with my boyfriend or girlfriend. And then it comes in and says, I'm no good, I've, I've failed, I'm miserable, another one down the drain. <laughs> and that's when, beyond the description of the event, that's when the mind begins to distort. And that's when I would say, you better be a little bit wary of what it's saying to you. But of course, I mean, we're going to use thought. We need to use thought. And thought is a friend. Thought is not an enemy. We just need to know to understand it, to understand how it is beneficial and to understand how it takes us away. Yes. God, that's a real interesting question. You know, for the first six months I was there, I saw the whole world in terms of dying. And then one day I was out on the lawn of Rice University, I was just taking a walk, and I saw a father playing ball with his two or three-year-old child. They were just lying in the grass in there. And I looked at it, and I looked away, I started to walk away, and my mind immediately went towards it and looked at it, because I knew my mind was out of balance with the one perception of life. And I needed to take in the newness and the joy and the beauty of that scene in a way that I had been denying for six months. 
And in that, I came to a different level of understanding of dying. And perhaps through repetition, perhaps through what, the drama of it, a lot of it, has fallen away for me. doesn't mean that I don't contact the suffering of those people. I do. Very deeply. But I have a different relationship to dying in myself. And it's not death so much that's the problem. It's the dying. It's the, it's the grieving and the, the letting go of the family and the person to life. And it brings up every form of grief in yourself, in the worker, so that you're constantly facing your own sense of loss and grief. But it becomes workable. And, but there's a high rate of burnout. But it's, it becomes workable without becoming cold and crass and distant to it. But meditation has been essential. I mean, it has kept me meditating. Yes? Isn't there a danger in getting attached to the sense heightening and that sense of things being awesome that you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, anything, you know. <laughs> It can become a new high, and new enthusiasm, new excitement. Um, I don't know if I need to say anything beyond that. It's, it's, it's always how the mind is relating to the event, right? I mean, is it looking for the motivation, what it is that's going on? Being honest with yourself and what, what you're doing. Are you looking for a high? Are we looking for a high? Are we trying to shake ourselves from this apathy, which is a different motivation? Or what, what, what is it that is our relationship to that thing? The relationship is what's important. How our mind is relating to that, not the thing itself. One more, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know why we do it. It just is. And, and somehow, I mean, in Buddhism it talks about the unknowables, the beginning of all the things. And I mean, the mind is a distorting quality. It, ha it's, it thrives on misery. <laughs> if you want the bare... The bare fact of the meditation, that's true. I mean, the mind creates its duality and then thrives on it. And that's our misery. Why it does it, it does it for its own satisfaction. God knows why. Maybe God knows why, I don't know. <laughs> Someone asked uh, Ramakrishna, the Indian saint, why there was evil in the world. And he replied, to thicken the plot. <laughs> I think it's time for walking. <laughs> okay. A couple of announcements. Um, there'll be a loving kindness meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.